Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Laura Clivens, in for Alexis Madrigal. California has pledged to slash the use of fossil fuels in the coming decades. As we electrify our homes, vehicles, and the energy grid, we're moving away from fossil fuels. For a whole slew of reasons, that's something to be celebrated. But for those who depend on the fossil fuel industry for their livelihoods, who expected to retire from these jobs, it's a more complicated story. A study from UC Berkeley followed workers laid off from the Marathon Oil Refinery in Martinez in 2020, and many are still not all right. How do we minimize harm to workers and the communities depending on the fossil fuel industry? That's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Laura Clivens in for Alexis Madrigal. California prides itself on leading the way in renewable energy. State leaders are aiming to reduce oil consumption by 94 percent and become carbon neutral by 2045. These drastic changes are needed to fight the existential threat of climate change. But they could also mean widespread worker displacement as fossil fuel-based industries wither. In Martinez, when a marathon oil refinery closed in 2020, hundreds of workers lost their jobs, jobs they hoped to retire from with minimal, and they lost them with minimal notice. A study from UC Berkeley surveyed those workers and found that many were unemployed for months or took large pay cuts to find new work. Today, we're talking about how to make a just transition, one that minimizes harm and tries not to leave people behind. Joining us first is James Felderman, a former head operator at the Marathon Martinez Refinery. Welcome, James. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Can you start us off by telling us about the work that you did at Marathon and how long you were there? I was there about 15 years. Um, it changes as, uh, as time goes on. You get I was hired as uh, an entry-level operator and uh, eventually uh, worked my way to being a head operator. 
Um, during that time, I was also um, an industrial firefighter. Okay. And what has your path been since the marathon layoffs in 2020? Uh, well, um, being that it was in 2020, it was a it was a real tough time to be uh, losing your job. Uh, yeah. COVID made everything more difficult. Um, people were not people were not hiring. They weren't even interviewing. Um, so, I had uh, I put out probably 250 applications wow. all around the country. Um, I had about 12 interviews out of all of that, and of those 12, only two. Uh, I, I want to say reasonable, but offers that I was willing to uh, accept uh, given the current climate. Mm. And so where did you end up? I ended up in Reno, Nevada. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about that. Was it was it hard to find that gig or why why did you end up so far from where you were living before? Well, there was hundreds of us that lost work at the exact same moment uh, in the same industry. A lot of us with similar experience and living in the same geographic area uh, that uh, that wasn't hiring. So there was a lot of us looking for uh, for work. So yeah. that's why I started looking all around uh, the country as uh, a lot of us did. Um, mine ended up being pretty close uh, being in Reno, but it was still you know, 200 miles away. And there was a period of time once I started working there uh, where I was traveling back and forth for months to be able to still see my family. Wow. And so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that, like the impact that that has had on your life, on your family's life since uh, needing to take a job that was not where you were living before? Sure. Um, you know, the uh, layoffs were announced for us in July. It was made clear to us by the company that we were being given uh, 90 days notice uh, simply because that was in our contract. They had to give us 90 days notice. Mm. And uh, so we had a little bit of time to start to start looking. I ended up uh, with an offer um, that kept me out of work for only about six or eight weeks afterwards. I started in December in uh, in Reno and so that meant I moved up there into a little apartment. And uh, every week when I was done working, I would drive 200 miles back to see my family. I had a son who was just starting or he was in his senior year of high school and a wife that worked for the school district. So we decided to have them finish the school year out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we eventually moved out there uh, the day after he graduated in June. Uh, moved into uh, a house that we bought out there. Yeah. And then, and in terms of like the community and things that have changed since you've moved, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, that's probably been the the hardest part. Uh, we had, were very, I guess, entrenched in our community in uh, Brentwood, California. We, uh, <clears throat> we uh, ran a youth football program. We, uh, I coached high school uh, football my wife ran a youth program through church. Um, everybody that we met and were friends with there, though, we met through uh, through our son. We'd lived there since he was in uh, first grade. Wow. And so we were, we were very involved. We had a lot of friends through that. And now we moved to a new place. Uh, we didn't have any of those connections, any of those uh, friends, any of that support, that kind of thing. So that was, that was very hard. Uh, I had work which I was already, you know, I'd already been there for several months. 
Um, but it was definitely very hard on our son who got to spend the last couple months before he went to college uh, away from all of his friends where he didn't uh, oh, know. Anything. Yeah. Oh. And then my wife, um, it was, it was very hard on, on her too. She's a very, very social person and uh, was very close with a lot of her, her friends, her coworkers, the people that worked with her. And she lost all of that as well. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm also wondering now how your current job compares to the work that you had at, at Marathon, if you can speak to that in terms of salary, safety, benefits. Um, in salary, uh, I took a job that paid $17 an hour less than I had been making. Um, that ended up being, I think, better than a lot of folks ended up with. But um, still, that's a huge cut. And even though it is cheaper to live in Reno, it isn't that much cheaper. Uh, the only real saving grace was that I sold a home in the Bay Area and was able to take that equity and put into a home in the Reno area. But for my coworkers that did not own homes that were renting, that were new in their job, um, one that I heard about had just closed on his house the week before the layoffs. Mm. Were he had moved uh, to the Bay Area to take the job, closed on a house. And, uh, you know, that's a tough position to uh, to be in. Yeah, definitely. As far as, as, far as the job itself, um, I suppose my job now is a bit safer. I'm, I'm not an operator anymore. I'm a training coordinator. And most of the time I am sitting in an office or at the front of a classroom. <laughs> okay. Is, yeah, that's, just, that's a little different. Um, well, I want to hear about how your experience compares with those of, um, of the coworkers who also got laid off. So I'd like to now bring in Virginia Park, who is one of the authors of this report that came from UC Berkeley. Virginia Park is a professor at University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Urban Planning and Urban Policy. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning. Um, so this report is about 700 jobs, but it's part of a larger trend. So can you tell us a bit about why it's important to pay attention to this? Sure. So the advantage or um, sort of the insight that my report provides is that we can see what actually happened to workers when fossil fuel jobs disappeared. And that's critical. Um, we don't have that kind of information. Um, we, uh, you know, as scholars really haven't gone directly to workers after a layoff like this. And I had the great opportunity to do so alongside um, the UC Berkeley Labor Center. And so we were able to really learn a lot about what, uh, what happened for these workers and the difficulties that they faced. So just as a few summary points, um, we asked workers, we were able to survey, survey them about a year after the layoff. Um, three out of four workers had found new jobs within that year, but those jobs came at a cost, just as James was speaking to. Um, James actually took a much larger pay cut than on average. On average, workers took a 24% wage cut. James took a 34% wage cut. And that was the reality that they faced. In order to remain employed, they had to do so at a much lower wage. These are folks with families, they own homes, right? They contribute to their um, communities. 
And, you know, I just, uh, I had to kind of stop and say, wow, what would it mean if I took a 24% wage cut? How would my life change? Um, right. Yeah. So, well, I'm Go wondering ahead. if you can just broaden it out a little bit too. It's like this is a this is a microcosm we're seeing here, a small group of people. Um, when you think about all the workers, um, but really, how how many people is this potentially going to affect when we think about this nationally? Right. Well, this study gives us sight lines on that coming transition, and it's tens of thousands of workers. Um, and these, and it's not just workers, right? It's their families, it's their communities, it's our counties, it's our states. So in the case of James, we have, you know, we lost two really amazing workers in California. We lost um, James and we lost his wife, a public school teacher. Um, and these are the losses that we need to consider as we move forward. Yeah. Um, we need to find ways to retain those skills, that productivity, and those, um, you know, communal ties. Right. And I want to get to those solutions in a bit. But right now, I'd like it if you could just, can you lay out a few more of the challenges that you saw the marathon workers facing? One of the biggest challenges was finding work. And that, but I really wanted to understand that in a very detailed way. So I asked workers lots and lots of questions. Um, one thing was even just the information that they had available to them for loc identifying jobs to, um, to apply for. I found that just like for many workers in the labor market, they've moved to online search engines. But some of those were poor performers. So James is an operator. That's a very complex job in a refinery. For some of the um, state uh, databases that workers had access to, when they would put in operator, even refinery operator, forklift operator would come up. So that's something. But probably most fundamentally was skills um, and the 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 what I call the legibility of skills to new employers. They new employers just did not understand what kind of skill set refinery mm. workers had, and they don't have a yeah. degree or a piece of paper that they can show. Right you know, I I want to get. I think this is something that we need to get into, and we're coming up on a break. So um, let's continue co that conversation shortly. We're talking about the transition away from fossil fuels and the workers that will be displaced as a result. How do we balance the urgent need to establish green energy without leaving those workers behind? We've been joined by James Felderman, former head operator at Marathon Martinez Refinery. Thanks for joining us, James, and Virginia Park. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Laura Clivens, in for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the transition away from fossil fuels and the workers that will be displaced as a result. How do we balance the urgent need to establish green energy without leaving those workers behind? We're joined by Virginia Parks, professor at University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Urban Planning and Urban Policy, and Tracy Scott, the president of the United Steelworkers Local 5. Uh, Welcome, Tracy. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Virginia, I just want to get back to you. You were talking about some of the the challenges with... um, for folks who have been laid off in transferring skill sets and a way of communicating about the skills that they do have, because they are highly skilled, is what you're saying. They are highly skilled, but they don't have a way to prove that they are highly skilled. And so this is one of the recommendations that really came from workers in my report. They need something like a skills passport, which is actually an idea that came from a steel worker down in Los Angeles you know, how could we create this passport that, you know, they can get stamped for different skill sets. You heard James mention that he was a firefighter at the refinery. That skill doesn't transfer to fire departments, um, you know, outside of the refinery. How can we scaffold those skills to a job, you know, like with a fire department? Um, And a skills passport would be one way to start doing that. But we really need the workers and their labor representatives, um, the state employers involved in that process so that they can carry this passport and really show that they have skills. And I just want to say, you know, a lot of us who are researchers, we say, oh, here's this set of skills. And then we create this crosswalk. We match them to other skills in the economy. That's great, but it's very theoretical. In real life, it's a much messier process. And workers need this assistance um, to help them carry, again, those skills to uh, to new jobs. Mm. And I want to get into more of the recommendations that you all found um, in doing this research. Uh, before that, I want to just open this up to you, our listeners, and, and ask, how has your community been impacted by the fossil fuel industry, for better or for worse? And are you worried your job might be eliminated in the shift away from fossil fuels? Um, to, to go back to you, Virginia Parks, what are some of the other recommendations? So this passport sounds like an awesome one. Um, what are some of the other ones that you came away with? Sure. So wage replacement is important. I mean, these workers have literally and figuratively powered California for decades. Um, and we really need to assist them financially as they transition into new jobs. Uh, we really need to be mindful of what those new jobs are and the quality of those jobs. And that's something that speaks to local economic development policy. Uh, we need to make sure that there that we are generating, creating new jobs that match the old jobs. And so they match them in terms of wages, quality, worker voice, that they have union representation, safety. Um, you know, these are hazardous jobs, but on the other hand, the union 
was responsible for creating a robust safety culture, and many workers found themselves working in more hazardous working conditions in their new jobs um, post uh, post layoff. And so we need to ensure that new jobs also carry those safety standards. Mm. Targeted hiring um, assistance is critical. We can't just say, here's a little bit, bit of money to go find your own job training program. That's akin to saying, well, figure it out on your own. Um, and training isn't the answer. Uh, these are, again, highly skilled workers, and we need to really pivot away from what has been our usual response in the workforce development uh, world. Yeah. Can you for can, these workers? Can you talk about that more? Um, and just a plug to our listeners, if you do want to join the conversation, give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Um, yes. Yeah, so Virginia Parks and Tracy uh, Scott, I want to hear from you as well on this. Um, I think we are often here, okay, you just do a training program and you reset and you do a new career. And so I'm hearing from from you, Virginia Parks, that that is not something that, that you recommend. Can you say more about that? Sure. There's a very large, um, you know, empirical literature that shows that job training isn't, uh, isn't really that effective. And I think we need to pay heed to that. These, again, are highly skilled workers. We need targeted job, uh, job search assistance. And then, sure, there's usually a very short-term training that can be very useful to get somebody up to speed on the specifics of a new industry or a new job. But again, that's already attached to a new job. Training for okay. the sake of training is problematic. Yeah. And Tracy Scott, I want to hear from you about that too. Because what does that actually look like on the ground? Why is that not a successful um, option? Well, I think, you know, when you consider the the, the high degree of uh, training and the complexity of the work that uh, our members and uh, the people in the fossil fuel industry uh, have uh, from the standpoint of uh, uh, their skill sets, um, they spend hundreds of hours each year in training. Um, they, they spend thousands of hours each year uh, in on-the-job uh, experience, and and there are uh, many many of their job skills that translate well to other industries. But those industries certainly, um, you know, have not enjoyed the uh, hundred years of uh, organizing and development from the standpoint of of the uh, the you know the economics and uh, the workplace safety culture that uh, is in place in the. Uh, uh, refining industry. And so, um, you know, I think that there's a disconnect uh, thinking that uh, these people who are entering the job market uh, need to be trained. They they have uh, a capacity to uh, to be trained and to learn uh, in, in uh, some of the most highly complex work environments that exist in this state. Mm. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, there there is certainly some need to identify ways to certify the skills they have and and to do that uh, perhaps in an academic setting uh, around uh, wastewater uh, water uh, treatment uh, boiler operation uh, those kinds of things um, where they would have a portable uh, cert uh, certification of their skill set but um, you know honestly I think that uh, 
um, we need to find a way to plug them into work that uh, um, already exists and we need to develop those uh, uh, workplaces uh, to the same extent that the oil industry has been developed over the 100 years of existence that it's had. Mm. And then, you know, another line of thinking that uh, we see a lot is, um, okay, so folks who work in fossil fuels can just transition to jobs in the green economy. And Tracy, um, I'm curious what the conversation is like among former or current folks who work in the fossil fuel industry about jobs in renewable energy. Is that, what is it? Well, I think that uh, renewable energy certainly provides for a, uh, a, a a good source of income for um, a short period of time. Uh, as you uh, pointed out in the uh, beginning in your intro, you know that we're looking for a ninety four percent reduction in fossil fuels. But what's going to happen as um, we move towards electric vehicles and, and electrification of the grid and away from uh, reliance on that? Um, you know, the the renewable fuels are a gap uh, fuel and, and they will go away also. And so, you know, people moving into jobs in the renewable fuels industry are also going to, uh, in 10, 15 years, experience the same thing that fossil fuel workers are experiencing now. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And then in terms of the green industry and green jobs, like I think some people are like, you can just like, let's just shift the people from here over here. You know, is that What's your what is your thought on that? I think that when you um, compare and analyze the uh, uh, the wages, benefits, and compensation in the uh, uh, green energy field, uh, you'll find that um, many of them are are at a, a substantial reduction. Um, you know, some as much as fifty percent of the wage scales and the benefits and things that uh, um, you know uh, our uh, fossil fuel workers uh, enjoy. Is there similar union representation in green energy jobs? I would say uh, at this point, no. Um, obviously, that's uh, uh, something that we're uh, um, you know looking at that uh, we certainly need to uh, develop an uh, uh, outside organi- organizing capacity to go after that uh, that sector. But right now, no, they're not. Okay, I want to go to a caller now, uh, Lisa in San Francisco. Yes. Hi. Um, I was going to mention the fact that um, we need a just transition, in other words, justice for workers, uh, as well as for the communities that have been affected by the fossil fuel industries. But listen to what your guest has just said. I'd like to point out a fact that many people don't realize. Uh, Fossil fuel industry has been subsidized by the public, by the government, by us, four to one compared to green energy or green green, um, technologies. So the, uh, it, it's been subsidized both on the front end and research and development, as well as the back end in terms of, uh, you know, rate pay subsidies to uh, these private uh, energy companies. So, you know, I think that the, the real deal here would be to make it public power. Uh, therefore, because we're already paying for it anyways out of our pockets as rate payers as well on the back end. Um, as well as in the front end in terms of our taxes, I think that it's important to have public power at this point. Uh, and fossil fuel companies have shown themselves to be very unreliable because they finance the, the, the lie uh, about uh, climate change. Uh, if anybody looks at the video called Merchants of Doubt, mm. it shows exactly who was behind 
the lie for the past 30 years mm-hmm. about climate change and making people believe that it was a that it was a hoax. To this day, people still believe it's a hoax. Yeah. So I think public power should be the the the, the answer, and a big new deal uh, be created by the government to to okay. put the money where it belongs. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you Lisa. Um, I'm a union member too, by the way. Okay. Thank oh, great. You. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. Um, well, I want to take a moment to bring in um, Supervisor John Joya. He's a Contra Costa County supervisor, um, and he has been doing a lot of work thinking about um, about the just transition. Um, you, Supervisor Joya, when we talk about a just transition, the, those words get used a lot. Mm-hmm. What is your definition of that? Um, well, it, it is a very important term. And, and I think just transition means just transition for workers um, in ways that Tracy and James have talked about, but also just transition for frontline communities. Uh, you know, I'm from I'm from Richmond. I represent um, uh, the area where the Chevron refinery is located. Many workers live here but also many residents who are impacted by pollution from refineries. In fact, just as a note, uh, Contra Costa is on the front lines of this transition. We are the second most industrialized county in the state after LA with four oil refineries, two which are converting to renewable fuel. And so I hear from workers and from residents, residents who say, we've been on the front lines of impacts from these refineries we want to be on the front lines of receiving the benefits to a green energy transition. So the, it, it is really about workers and community together. Um, and, and because of that, we are really organizing a countywide uh, effort, process, initiative to look at how does Contra Costa transition to clean energy jobs, but not just the low wage jobs, those jobs that are higher paid union jobs um, to replace the refinery jobs as they as we transition away from them. I think that is really important because right now, a lot of the green energy jobs, uh, as, as was mentioned, are not paid at the same level as a refinery job. I think that is going to change over time, but that doesn't help current workers. And while a number of the marathon workers um, uh, not all clearly were uh, reemployed at the renewable fuel facility that Marathon is opening. Um, there is going to be a need uh, to identify the types of employers and industries that work for our communities and workers and our tax base. So I think mm, that is our yeah. goal. That's why we have a process, um, and it's a it's a difficult subject for me. It's a difficult subject. Okay. Well, I want to go to a caller right now, Heidi in Martinez. Hi, Heidi. Good morning. My name is Heidi Taylor. I'm with Healthy Martinez Refinery Accountability Group. First, I want to say that I am so sorry that Marathon didn't take better care of its laid-off workers, and I'm sorry to James that you were forced out of the Bay Area. I think this is an example of the refinery's resistance to embrace safety equipment to keep our communities safe. Uh, My home, garden, and cars were covered by the toxic spent catalyst release last Thanksgiving. Mm. Uh, Martinez Refining Company, MRC, was responsible for that. They are facing criminal charges for not telling us about the release, and the US EPA and the FBI were here interviewing residents. But remember, MRC 
Phillips 66, Marathon, and Chevron do not have a wet gas scrubber. That is a safety uh, device that would reduce emissions by 70%. And rather than do that, they are suing the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. It's a disgrace. Mm. And I want to speak specifically to the workers because there is a UCLA study by the Luskin Center that says that 4,600 jobs would be created with the installation of that wet gas scrubber. So I think we need to encourage and, and demand that our local refineries do the right thing yeah. because we can protect the workers and our communities. We can do both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Heidi. I appreciate that perspective. And we we have a forum show on on that very issue. If you all want to go to the, if anyone wants to go to the archives and check that out. Um, but I appreciate that, and I think that sort of gets to this dance, which I want to ask uh, you about, Supervisor Goya, Joya, excuse me, um, between the people who are really re- on the receiving end of the pollution from these refineries um, and the people who rely on it. And, and, and sometimes, as you mentioned, they are the same people um, for tax bases, uh, for income. H- how do you think about that? And how do you balance those things? And, and let me first start by saying, I do think the state has a responsibility to really close the wage gap and help these workers because there's a number of great, I want to say this, great recommendations in this study that talk about what we need to do Um, because during a period of time here, there is going to be a gap between these well-paid jobs and the new jobs that we are working hard to create and bring to Contra Costa. Um, Yes, I I think um, this, this gets to an equity issue for both communities and workers. There are many workers who live in these communities um, and of course, uh, resi- many residents who don't work at facilities, but all of them have been impacted by the pollution of living uh, near a refinery. And they want, and they, and these residents, I hear from them, care about workers as well. Um, so that is why I, we need to have this transition. Make we need to make sure that these residents are on the front lines of being able to access clean energy jobs as well. They need to be able to uh, afford the technology, whether it's an electric car, um, being able to electrify their house. These are all expensive things. Those residents want to be part of this transition. Okay. So um, I think so that's com- key. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, we're coming up on a break here. So uh, let's continue this conversation right after it. Uh, we're talking about the transition away from fossil fuels and the workers that will be displaced as a result. Uh, we're speaking with Virginia Parks professor at University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Urban Planning and Urban Policy. Thank you so much for joining us, Virginia. Tracy Scott, president of United Steelworkers Local 5. John Joya, Contra Costa County supervisor. And we also want to hear from you. Are you worried your job might be eliminated from the shift? What are some what are some ways that you see a just transitioning could happen in here in the Bay Area? I'm Laura Clivens in for Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back with more forum after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Laura Clivens in for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the transition away from fossil fuels and the workers that will be displaced as a result. And we want to hear from you. What are ways that you see a just transition being able to happen here in the Bay Area? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED forum. Uh, We are going to bring now to the conversation Jessie Hammerling. She's the co-director of the Green Economy Program at UC Berkeley's Labor Center. Hi, Jessie. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we're seeing a microcosm of what's happening all around the country here in the Bay Area. And we have, um, we're also seeing that there's some real promise potentially with green jobs, but also some challenges that our our, mem- our guests have been pointing out as well as our listeners. Um, can you talk about this and, and the balance between whether green jobs really could could jump to fill in the gap created by fossil fuel industry withering? Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, so I think it's important to start by really recognizing that the energy transition is a serious challenge for regions like Contra Costa that currently where the economy is based around fossil fuel industries. Um, And this is, you know, it'll cause disruptions both for workers and for the local economy more broadly. Um, we also know that making this change is necessary for our survival, um, and I think we all get that here, but, um, you know, also it represents a really important opportunity to course correct um, and build an economy that's actually better than the one we currently have in terms of carbon emissions and local environmental impact and in terms of economic inequality. Like, that's the promise here. That's the opportunity we have, but we know that that's not going to happen on its own, and we have to really take seriously what's involved in making that change and making those outcomes that are, you know, really going to be better for people. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's a few things that are involved in that and what, you know, what will take to make sure that the energy transition is actually just for places like Contra Costa. Um, And first and foremost, I think what we need is a planning process that puts workers and communities at the center in these regions that are, you know, um, vulnerable for this kind of disruption so that they can decide for themselves what's actually needed to make sure that transition is actually truly a just transition because we know that this change is coming, right? Yeah. And then and can you get into some specifics on that? Like how could that actually work? Who should be coordinating that? Who should be sitting at the table? That's a good question. Um, so I think uh, there's a lot that local governments can do. I mean, I think that unions are really a critical partner here and local governments and affected communities in the neighborhoods surrounding um, the fossil fuel industries, all of these are really key players in determining 
what needs to happen, right? And I, I do want to emphasize the role of the unions here because they play such a critical role in supporting job quality, wages, and skill development. Um, you know, fossil fuel workers, by and large, aren't against acting on climate change. They just want to know that their lives and their communities aren't going to be sacrificed in the process. Mm. And that's not unreasonable, and it's not too much to ask. Let's go to Paul now. He's in San Francisco. Welcome, Paul. Yes, I'm a proud third-generation union member. I've retired. I see in many, especially the more strident environmentalist, environmental activists, uh, a lack of labor consciousness. And I'm glad to hear that there is labor consciousness in universities, but I don't see a lot of it. And it seems oftentimes in the eyes of workers, we have highly educated college uh, uh, people making decisions for blue-collar workers who might not have advanced college degrees. I think there has to be more labor consciousness in the academic uh, circles and certainly from uh, the, the leadership in, in California, the political leadership. Yeah. And then can I you think can, that would help. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more, Paul, what you think labor consciousness, consciousness would actually look like. Well, for example, in San Francisco, which was built on union labor and the public school system and in the college and the junior college, there's no there's very little labor studies. You should have to take a, a course in labor history to graduate from high school in San Francisco and to graduate from a university in California, you should have to take a labor Mm. history course. Mm -hmm. I think that would help in terms of consciousness. All right. Great. Well, thank you. I want to go next to to Yang Yang in Berkeley. Welcome, Yang Yang. Oh, hi. 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 Um, Yeah, I was just listening to this. I'm I'm actually happened to be in the solar industry for for a while, you know, so I, um, you know, I agree with uh, what was Sorry, what was his name? He moved to Reno, right? The, the James. pay is in the in the solar industry where renewable energy in general is lower than fossil fuel. That's for sure. It's, it's just the nature of the business here. Um, they the margin is much lower than comparatively to to the oil industry. Um, but I also want to you know kind of uh, for the the you know the subject of the transition right for. For the communities, for the neighbors, uh, for the neighborhood that are being affected, um, I wonder if it, you know the local government or um, whoever you know able to you know instead of doing those kind of frankly you know, not very useful training to be honest because I myself at mm. one point got laid off um, and I went into like I forgot was a county some uh, I forgot what was it, like employment office or somewhere they asked me for training when I look at it. Well, you know, it's like it, it doesn't make, even make sense. You know, it's not even for. We're, yeah, we're hearing that theme a lot right? this hour. Yeah, so that's, it's all the time. So I don't know why the resources are still put in in there. But huh. you know, yep. for let me put it this way: for for people working in 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 oil and refinery, there those people are highly skilled, highly trained. They are put it put it you know put it simply, they they are probably even overqualified working in the renewable energy industry you know solar in general is much simpler building a solar project mm. comparatively to 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 building a refinery or operating a solar plant comparing to operating a refinery it, it's you can't compare that that's so interesting those people yeah in the refinery for that many years they're overqualified 
So they could be easily transitioned into renewable. Let me put it this way. There okay. may be some skill sets different, some mindset different. But in terms of a skill set, they are perfect suitable. You know, people okay. like Thank you. as a project manager at, let's say, in Chevron Richmond Refinery, they could easily manage some of those solar project, battery, you know, energy storage project. So mm-hmm. they need the opportunity able to, you know, maybe some – you know, there's actually a shortage of the, some of the you know, renewable energy industry right now, labor shortage, because with, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, you know, put in force, you know, everything's coming here, the solar, the energy storage, all the things are booming. So yeah. there's got to be somebody, you know, having some type of job fair. Instead of talking more sort of broader issue, I think it's more, we need to have a more targeted, right? Okay. Yeah. I, I want to hear what Tracy Actually, his thoughts on that. Um, Tracy, uh, what what do you think about some of these more like targeted, tangible approaches that we're hearing from Yang Yang? Well, I, I think that uh, my members do have um, a, a high degree of uh, capability for, uh, you know, application to other manufacturing uh, uh, industry. I think that, uh, you know, um, we... Uh, our operations group um, certainly uh, could be considered project managers on a daily basis with the uh, uh, the types of activities that are expected from them in the fossil fuel industry. So um, I, I believe strongly that uh, um, you know just being able to uh, provide a, a certification of the work that they do would certainly allow uh, uh, other prospective employers to understand the capacity mm. uh, that they have for the work that uh, they would need them to to do. Mm. Laura, yeah. Laura, if I can just briefly add, I think what's sure. also important here is, um, is how are we training our, our new workforce for the jobs of the future? And that's those coming out of high school or junior colleges who previously may have gone into a refinery job, well-paid union jobs. So what we need to think about the career pathways for those young people out of Kennedy High School in Richmond, for example, to get them the training to get a higher paid clean energy job. So I I think we're focusing on both those issues from a career pathway standpoint, existing workers who have a high level of training as as Tracy and and James have said, but also new workers entering the job market um, whose opportunities now will be in the non-fossil fuel industry. So we wanna create those new jobs, but train people for those jobs because those are the jobs of the future as the fossil fuel jobs um, transition out and go away. Mm-hmm. We also we also need to um, look at the economic development that's going on yeah. in the region yes. and, and provide incentives right. to bring uh, uh, other firms into the area uh, in order for those jobs to be available. And to to be unionized, because I think, as, as, as Tracy has said, many of those green jobs are not unionized. And the reason they're so well paid is because of a strong union. So I think we need to really look at that carefully as well. Otherwise, we're going to see this wage gap. Yeah. So we're talking about the transition away from fossil fuels and the workers that will be displaced as a result. Um, we are presently talking with Tracy Scott, president of United Steelworkers Local 5, John Joya, Contra Costa County Supervisor, and Jesse Hammerling, co-director of the Green Economy Program at UC Berkeley's Labor Center. You're all bringing up some points about we need to attract um, businesses here 
that that will be able to employ folks um, with good jobs in the future. So how do we actually do that, Supervisor Joya? Well, one of the things we, we've appreciated working with uh, Assemblymember Tim Grayson, um, he uh, carried a bill which creates a green empowerment zone in Contra Costa County. And um, its board includes representatives of the county, I'm the representative, and cities to look at uh, what kinds of tax incentives or other incentives can we create to bring those jobs to Contra Costa. We can, we can engage in a lot of good planning, but we're going to need, especially as the second most industrialized county in the state, we're going to need some help. Uh, to have incentives from the state to move these companies here. For example, in Lancaster in Los Angeles County, there is an electric bus manufacturing facility that is all union, well-paid jobs. So uh, there's a, I, I think people think these green jobs are not all industrial jobs. There are industrial jobs uh, where the skills of um, refinery workers and others um, are, are valuable. And so I think this the, the tax a tax credit would make a lot of sense to attract the right companies to the right parts of the county. I think mm. that are non-polluting types of businesses, uh, and we're going to need help from the state. And we appreciate Assembly uh, Member Grayson and 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 carrying that bill to help us out. Yeah, I want to go to some comments now. Um, Bob writes. Sadly, the concept of a job for life has been over for a long time. Every employee needs to accept that the company has no long-term commitment to them. The employee needs to have a next job plan while currently well-employed in a green transition labor market or other. That said, we also need all the help programs discussed today. Noah tweets, A green energy transition is not the end-all be-all of climate or pollution mitigation. Many of these technologies depend on dirty power sources and or toxic materials in their manufacturing. We should transition to clean energy while reducing our use. All right. Thank you both for those comments. I I also want to bring in another caller now. We're going to go to Chris in Concord. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, thank you for uh, taking my call. My name is Chris Snyder. I'm uh, the political director for the Operating Engineers Local 3, and uh, we're the largest construction local in the United States with about 40,000 members, and we do all the infrastructure, uh, highways, bridges, all that sort of stuff. But we work hand-in-glove with the refineries and uh, the workers out there. And um, we, you know, I, I had a couple comments. Of, one around, um, you know, we're, I know there's studies around uh, skill. I mean, these skills are all transferable. And I haven't heard much about the building trades model where we have, you know, certified apprenticeship programs by the state. Um, and, you know, we have folks out at the refineries, hundreds of them in shutdowns. And those kind of skill sets are transferable to things like high-speed rail, uh, offshore wind, um, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I would say that the, with the Inflation Reduction Act, has some wonderful wage standards in there that kind of transfer because these jobs are good pension. They have good pensions, private sector pensions, uh, good wages, health benefits. And we need to make sure as they transfer from, you know, one industry into another that those things follow them. Um, and there's some good stuff in, in the infrastructure legislation and Inflation Reduction Act stuff. Um, so hmm. I, I, just some of my comments there. And um, also one worry about my our job loss uh, potentially in the in our industry is, you know, as we trans, uh, transition away from the gas tax, uh, we're still going to need, you know, infrastructure funding source. So whether it's uh, vehicle miles travel or something like that, that's going to be a painful transition uh, for the workers that we represent. Mm. Thank you very much for that, Chris. Um, 
I want to I want to hear from the guests we have currently right now. As we move forward, it sounds like we really need to be thinking about a lot of advanced planning here. Um, a Union of Concerned Scientists study said that half of the oil refineries in the U.S. are likely, <coughs> excuse me, to close in the next twenty years, and half of the remaining refineries will close within a decade after that. So, how are what are the next steps that the Bay Area needs to take to prepare communities? for this transition. Let's go first to you, Jesse Hammerling. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as I, like I said before, I think, you know, we need a planning process that puts workers and communities at the center here. They need to be, we need to be thinking ahead. We know this change is coming, like you just referenced, and we need to be putting our place plans in place now to figure out what's gonna be needed to make the transition happen smoothly um, and ensure that nobody's left behind. We need to be thinking about how to attract as much federal and state investment to regions like Contra Costa that are likely to see disruption. Um, and it's not just about drawing that uh, those investments into the region. You know, there's a bunch of money out there that can support infrastructure projects, that can support manufacturing in a wide range of industries. All of this is doing work that we desperately need to get done and that can make use of the uh, skills of fossil fuel workers, whether they're workers in the refinery, like the steel workers or building trades workers, like the operating engineers. Um, so there's a lot out there, but the job quality, we're not going to get it to land in Contra Costa. And with the job quality, we need to really redeploy these workers coming out of these union facilities if we don't make a concerted effort to do that, right? So it means drawing in the investment, as Supervisor Joya mentioned, and it means making sure that we're attracting the kind of firms that want to compete on quality, that really value and mm. reward worker skills. Okay. Not only will that help create better jobs and better outcomes for the workers and communities here, but it will also draw more people into the pool and deal with these labor supply shortages that some employers are worried about. Right? Thank if you. you pay yep. workers Thank better, you, Jesse. I'm, I'm sorry. I've got to cut you off. I want to hear just briefly. Um, last thought on this, Tracy Scott, what we need to be looking for. You know, I think that the uh, uh, standards in, in, in uh, the state um, need to, uh, when making policy changes uh, in, in uh, um, this type of subject, they need to um, bring all the stakeholders in um, prior to uh, moving in, in the direction they, they decide to move so that it can be thoughtful and, and well considered and that the equity that needs to be in uh, in place um, for everybody impacted, uh, the community, um, you know, the fence line uh, community, uh, okay. the workers, the All right, community well, yes. resources. Thank yeah. you. I'm sorry to jump in and cut you off. And and Supervisor Joya, um, sorry about that, but we've run out of time. We have been talking about the transition away from fossil fuels and the workers that will be displaced as a result. We've been joined by Tracy Scott, president of United Steel Workers Local 5, John Joya, Contra Costa County Supervisor, Jesse, Jesse Hammerling, co-director of the Green Economy Program at UC Berkeley's Labor Center. Thank you all so much for joining the show. I'm Laura Clivens, in today for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum, ahead with guest host Leslie McClurg. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera, 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.